This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Daniel Henderson. And we're back with you to talk about films and everything else. Danielle, hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. A um, little tired this morning because I woke up very early. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was 1994. I woke up super early to purchase concert tickets. Yeah! And I had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and it was so worth it. Yeah. And I hadn't purchased tickets in a long time, so when I got there, I'm like, all right, it's going to be a fucking free-for-all. This is what I remember of Ticketmaster. I think because I was buying the tickets for a concert in another country that likes to line up, um, there was a queue, yes. which was even more terrifying, because I got in there 10 minutes early and they're like join the waiting room and i'm like all right so i joined the waiting room and they're like there are ten thousand people ahead of you yeah <laughs> i was like am i gonna get fucking tickets what the fuck stressful but i did i did it was stressful but um, did you have yeah. to do the thing I've, I've done this before where i will log in on my computer and my home yep. phone and my work phone and i'm like just whoever gets in first Absolutely. And I picked like three different locations because I'm like, I will see them anywhere. Like, just give me the chance. (laughs) So I'm like, on this this device, I'm logged in for this city. For this device, I'm logged in for this city. And I did. Like, I ended up buying tickets for two places because um, one, I got in first, but it wasn't like the main place I wanted to go. Mm. So I just bought two tickets. And then... I'm like, maybe I'll go here. Maybe I'll give them to a friend or like resell them or something. And then the, the I did get into the one I wanted to get into and got fucking great seats. Seats were a premium. <laughs> this is the other thing about the first one. The first one was um, the only thing left was general admission on the floor standing. No. And I'm like, I am too old for that game. Yep. I ain't getting there early to line up. So I get there in the front. I'm not fucking fighting with people on the floor. I'm not getting beer spilled all over me. So the second place where I actually wanted to go, I got four incredible seats and i'm like i can sit my old ass down yeah i can be with my people i feel like because of what this concert is it's going to be filled with people my age anyway mm-hmm. so i'm psyched so i'm a little tired but i also i have a very serious and important question for you okay now that we are into the season heavily into the season how many cinnamon brooms do you currently have in your house? 
Oh, I knew that was coming. Um, How? The people want to know. Currently, I have one cinnamon broom out, meaning out of the plastic, just out in the house, and then I have two whisks. Wait, are the are the whisks the tiny ones? Yes, the t- the tiny little uh, baby ones um, that I just kind of like throw in little areas, like ones in my laundry room, because I'm like, I don't know, there's like tools back here. Maybe it'll smell nice if I put like a little whisk here. What do your tools but, usually smell like? I don't know, like dirt, like red Georgia clay. What the hell are you doing with these tools? You're like, let me drill directly into a sack of rancid meat. <laughs> and then I'm just going to put this shit back on the shelf. I have my rancid meat hatchet that's in the corner. <laughs> it, it is only for rancid meat. And uh, it, needs, it, it needs to be deodorized, but I haven't had the time. So I'm just going to stick a cinnamon whisk back there and pray. Not uh, even a broom, just a whisk, just a light, <laughs> a light airing. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a little fragrant, a little, a tiny little fragrant bomb. There's one in in that laundry room, and then there's one in the guest bathroom. So I'm like, okay, well, my guests will f- smell the season in here. I never have people at my house, by the way, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, this is an aspirational setting. <laughs> Bitch, I don't know if this is the way you are at your house because, I mean, like, this is, a, I have this, like, whole guest bathroom that is ready to go in case. <laughs> like, it's like a fucking, it's like a bathroom in, like, a New York City steakhouse with, like, perfumes and, like, little hairsprays and, like, <laughs> Like, why are you setting this up? No one comes over. You got some man sitting in there holding towels and, like, waiting for a tip. Yes. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, I'm sorry. You just show up every day for your shift and nothing <laughs> happens. I know. It's like I have this medicine cabinet that I have, like, it's like hairs for the guests, like mouthwash and, like, hairspray. And I'm like, that shit, no one has used any of this stuff. I never have people over. There's there's never going to be a time where anybody's going to use any of these toiletries. But I understand the impulse. I understand the impulse because I am the same way where I'll be goddamned if anyone's ever coming to my house. But I understand the urge because I'm like, ooh, I can't wait until I get this place in enough good order that I can actually have people come and stay. And I've got a guest bucket. I've got a bucket, like a little plastic Tupperware, you know, one of those crates. Yeah. That's filled with like tampons and soap and fucking <laughs> <Yeah>. moisturizer. <laughs> like You're like a anything. soul cycle up in there. You're like, <laughs> anything. You got hair. I got hair ties. <laughs> I've got whatever you need. <laughs> Lotions. Potions. Especially because like I'm so gross that like I use that bucket as a way to kind of guess what people do to take care of themselves. Because yes. I have no skincare routine to speak of. You know, I don't take a shower every day if I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And I'm just kind of gross. So I'm like, what would somebody who, like, takes care of themselves want for their daily prep when it's not just, like, brushing your teeth and wiping the crust out of your eyes? Like, yeah. what would they do? Yeah. And so I look in the bucket and I'm like, oh, maybe I should moisturize something. Maybe I should put some <laughs> moisturizer on a leg. A leg, one leg. Maybe maybe I should pump us a foot. <laughs> well, but, and yeah. like to to be honest, like I'm I'm just too excited because 
This this is literally the only time in my life where I have ever had extra space. Yes. Right? Like I've only lived in one bedroom or less. Yep. Places. <laughs> like sometimes it's one big room and I've never had a guest bathroom. I've never had an Same. extra extra anything. So I'm like we're going ham on this guest bathroom. And Absolutely. On top of that, I have been in certain I won't say who, but I've been to people's houses who do have like tons of rooms, tons of bathrooms. And there have been times where I've been into one of their guest bathrooms and there's like it is barren in there. There's no fucking toilet paper, there's no soap for the sink. There's like dead bugs in the corner and I'm like that's how much they don't use that bathroom. And I'm like wow. I can't have that. Like, I Hell know no. I never go in this bathroom, but I, there are going to be flies in here and there's going to be toilet paper. Like, come on. So you're in the, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready mode. Yeah. <laughs> like, if I keep this cinnamon whisk out, then I don't have to worry about how it smells in here. Somebody's like, I need a place to stay tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, like the the cinnamon whisks. Because I gotta be honest, I've been getting a lot of emails from folks about the they, cinnamon. I'm telling like, you, they want to know <laughs> where are you with your cinnamon whisks consumption. Um, I, I'm gonna say it again because some of y'all are fooling around and you're sending me photographs of like brooms that are not cinnamon scented, like. The Maui Wowie brooms, the fucking Mm-mm. like Lavender. pina colada, fucking pine fir. No, they're not the the ones that I enjoy. I only like cinnamon original recipe. Don't fucking give me a tropical cinnamon br- or a tropical broom. Don't give me a no. tropical broom. That is so weird. At that point, it's just like you just have a bunch of sticks that smell like the beach. Come on. <laughs> Okay, I I think this happened the last time we talked, last season, when we talked about the cinnamon broom thing. Because a lot of people were like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Like, it's a country thing. It's it's like a country thing where you have to imagine, like, oh, I'm going to the grocery store to pick up, like, a six-pack and some chips. And they're like, oh, in the corner is a decorative wooden barrel filled with these weird unusable brooms that are made of, like, sticks, and it's like, it's like, oh, I just went to, like, the old farm and bought this off of a farmer. That's, it looks very crafty, but they're mass-produced, obviously, and they're only available in the fall and in the wintertime Mm -hmm. in the South, but I hear other places have them, too. They definitely don't have them in California. I have... Only at Trader Joe's. Only. Only at Trader Joe's. And begrudgingly. Yeah. I the think same way that, like, like, Trader Joe's will sell an apple cider donut in L.A. in the middle of the fucking fall. <laughs> and I'm like, you are in a city where people don't eat bread or gluten. Yeah. So thank you for putting these out for the three of us who will eat. This is not, this is a lost leader for you. This is not a money-making endeavor for Trader Joe's. I think cinnamon evokes, like, the country, the Cracker Barrel, the fucking farmland. Like, you know, the only things that are made with cinnamon are, like, things that have a lot of calories. So people in our L.A. are like, why the fuck do we need cinnamon-scented anything? Like, Why are you reminding me that I haven't had a sweet 
Yeah. To, nothing sweet to eat for yes. five years. The, the entire town is mostly scented like Santal 33 Lalabo perfume. <laughs> like it's not a cinnamon <laughs> town. <laughs> so they're not any of that that fall, the fall festival shit. They're like, no, they're like, we nope. will smell like a yoga studio, an upscale <laughs> yoga studio or nothing. <laughs> we will smell like money or nothing at all. Here's Even what if we're do. dead broke. Take this whisk. Take this broom. Cut the whiskey things off of it. So it's just the stick part. Burn it at one end. Make it smell like Palo Santo or some sage, and that's L.A. But that's that's <laughs> it. There's, there's no or reason to have a cinnamon broom in L.A. Take that broom with you when you're on your walk to Runyon and use it like, you know people how people use the lift bar without the weights on it? Yeah. Like fucking pump that shit in front of you and be like, this is my seasonal bar that I used to walk with on Runyon. <laughs> we lived in LA for so long to have such stereotypes about that place. I know. But truly, Cinnamon and LA do not go, Cinnamon Brooms and LA do not go together and Trader Joe's knows it and they're like, look, we have to carry these nationally. It's the only reason they're here. And they're in like a cardboard box that's like wet at the bottom somehow. <laughs> The top's just the top of the box is just like ripped off by oh hell yeah some employee yeah it is they got all the like bills of lading are still on there and they're like fucking there's always like groceries that people didn't want that they are like oh that's what this box is for so there's just like lemons <laughs> and a fucking packet of <laughs> <laughs> like a bucket of cookies <laughs> yeah. packing up those little rye bread toasts I, I was having a hard time there I mean because. That that's the thing, like, you know, I don't know. We experience seasons in these locations that we live in now. Yeah. And when you go to a place that basically is just summer all the time, you're like, huh, may I have this like hankering for like something fall, something yes. cozy, you know, I need like a elbow patch sweater. I need something like that. And it's just so hard to find there. It's really it's hard. Impossible. And summer's my least favorite season. It's like I'm sweating the most, I'm the most uncomfortable. For me to move to a place this year-round summer was the dumbest thing I've ever done. And I yeah. had to do it for my career, but like I could I could not have run out of there fast enough for that reason. I'm like, if this yeah. were if there were a place where it was fall year-round, I would have thrived. I would have fucking bloomed like that one of those like corpse flowers that only blooms every once in a while. I would have been <laughs> blooming all year round. Yeah. If that in that place, but no, I can't. I can't do it with LA. But we know this. Yeah. I actually was on, I was a guest on a podcast a, a while ago. And the way that somebody introduced me was, she used to live in L.A., but she hates it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm glad that my reputation precedes me. Yeah. And it's true. <laughs> yeah. I, You know, I, I th we've talked about this. I, I don't think I hated living in L.A. I thought it was fine. I had a lot of bad luck there, and I had... Yeah. <laughs> there was a bad times in L.A., not gonna lie. Really tested... That tested me psychically, but you know what? Like, it was fun. It was fun while I was there. It didn't feel ever like a long-term thing to me. I was like, there's yeah. no way I can be here in my 70s or whatever. Like, I'm like, it's just not possible. Because, again, I I have a guest bathroom. Yeah. I could never have that in L.A., you know? Exactly. That's, it. That's what, what I didn't like about it the most was how limited my life felt where I'm like, I am going to be poor forever if I stay here. Yeah. I'm never going to have anything. 
And yeah. I have a good career. So to have a good career and feel like I'm never going to have anything was real weird for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so weird how there there were so many times when I was living in LA that I was like am I doing the like am I I feel like I'm in college again in a, in a weird way. Yes. I mean, sometimes that's kind of fun, like running around town like being stupid and drinking and you know, like running down Melrose like at two in the morning, like going to weird escape rooms with fucking and eating like cookies, whatever, you know, it's just like all that crazy shit. But it did make me feel like I'm like, I I I think I fundamentally have a good job and I'm and I can take care of myself. Like if I were in any other place, I would be yeah. extremely comfortable. But here it just made me feel like I was always struggling. Yes. And it just, it fucks with you. You know what it I mean? Totally it really fucks, fucks with, you. with you. It fucks with your sense of, of purpose and yeah. future. And, and and plus, you know, like when you're in a place like that and the whole world is burning around, like you're just like, oh, this is, it's coming for me first. Like this is the, this is where it's going to, it will land on me first because the whole world is suffering and yeah. you can see the suffering everywhere in LA, but everyone's just turning a blind eye to it. Yeah. It's wild. I know. And I would have these moments where I like, try to do some of my folksy Southern shit, like cinnamon brooms and especially like tea. Like, I'm so pissed that people still balk at the idea of sweet tea. Like, I'm like, it's still treated as if it's this like fucking depraved, like, you know, (laughs) deliverance ass fucking drink. Like, sweet tea, sugar and iced tea. It's fucking delicious. Are you kidding me? Yes. And, like, I would be on the West Coast and say, like, I would very gingerly be like, hi, do you have iced tea? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, do you have sweet tea? And they're like, excuse me, what? Look at where you are. And adjust. Why would we ever do that? I'm like, oh, you don't think about putting sugar into cold tea? Like, you know, hot tea, right? You know how people put honey in hot tea? That it's some Southern shit that seems to be fairly ubiquitous. Just oh think God. of it with ice in it. And that's what I'm fucking talking about. And these people treated me like I was some dumbass. And I'm like, stop doing that. It is fine. It is not weird. It's a real thing. And I, and I know I've said this before, but I have to reiterate. The one thing in my life that I am so happy about living here, I have not heard the word matcha in a year and a half. Because <laughs> I would go into a place and just be like, can I just have a coffee? And they're like, um... I'm like, yeah, just coffee. Um, I guess we're making our lavender matcha right now, though, so it'll be about 20 minutes. And I'm like, what? Because somebody in front of me ordered a fucking matcha, and they're like, we gotta whisk it. We gotta grind it. We gotta get the mortar and pestle. We gotta get all this shit. And I'm like, I can't just get a fucking coffee without you looking at me like I'm a weirdo. I am going to admit something to you right now. I think I'm a little fuzzy on what matcha actually is. Of course you are, because it's like a weird powder that's green. And I'm, look, (laughs) if you're a matcha lover, do not write to us. I am telling you right now, put your fingers away. (laughs) I don't want to hear it. (laughs) I've tried it. I don't like it. It tastes like I'm drinking grass, and I'm not a fan. But it's basically like a powdered plant yeah, of some I, kind. 
I'm Googling it. <laughs> Finely ground powder of specially grown and processed green tea leaves. Yeah. Okay. So it's, so it's just green tea. Powdered leaves is what it's you're saying. Powdered tea. Okay. It's I, powdered tea. Now, and this is also a, a moment where I gotta say, class issues come into play for me because when I was growing up drinking powdered milk, they looked at me like I was like gum on the bottom of somebody's shoe, but you powder some green leaves and all of a sudden you guys are highfalutin and like fucking charging a million bucks for it. Powdered milk versus powdered matcha. Get out of town. So I, yeah, I, I just can't. I can't. And I cannot with the whole production of it and the special whisk and all the shit. I want coffee. I want caffeine in my body immediately. And if I ever got in line behind somebody who ordered matcha, I'm like, well, there goes my fucking afternoon. What okay, am I confusing what is the fermented bubbly stuff? Kombucha. People... Okay, kombucha. That's some booch. <laughs> I'm Googling. I listen, I Which can also go to hell. And I don't care if it's good for my gut health. There are other things that are good for my fucking gut health. I'd rather chug raw apple cider vinegar than drink kombucha. I butchered the spelling of kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you okay, is it because it's K O M B U C H A. I I typed in I did this with one hand because I'm talking to you. K O M B U H A. Kabuha. Kabuha. <laughs> Can I have some kombuha with coconut oil instead of milk? Yes, it is mushroom tea, mushroom tea fungus, fermented lightly effervescent sweetened black tea, commonly consumed for its health benefits. Listen, when the apocalypse arrives, when, not if, when the apocalypse arrives, I will be incredibly grateful for the person who knows how to turn some old mushroom leaves into a drink. But while there is still Diet Coke on this planet, I am not drinking kombucha. <laughs> Look, I, I'm not trying, like, Filipinos eat some weird shit too, man. Like, balut, like, fucking purple yams, like, I don't know if anybody ever has eaten a Filipino dessert called Hollow Hollow. Oh, yeah. That shit, that shit looks a mess. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. A anytime my mom gets it, I'm like, and she's like, you want some Hollow Hollow? I'm like, no. Why? This has got like fucking gummy bears in here and some, we <laughs> like, are there marshmallows in here? Why, why is there yams in here? Like, what the <laughs> fuck is this mess? <laughs> But somehow, I what I appreciate about it is it doesn't have the snobbery attached to it. But I guarantee there's a restaurant in LA who has made Hollow Hollow some fucking high level forty dollar dessert, and Look. that's what bothers me. Is like if you were just drinking some old tea leaves and some old mushrooms, and just like being a dirt bag, fine. It's the whole lifestyle and process that comes along with it that just makes me want to run the other way. Listen. And that's that's happened to me a lot in my life where I'm like, this thing is probably good for me, but because of the people associated with it, I'm going to now have liver failure because I will never <laughs> actually try this because I don't want to be one of those people. Balut has, apparently has health benefits, but I don't see yoga ladies on, in West Hollywood eating fucking Balut. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I was like picking and choosing. They're picking and choosing. Like this will make me seem exotic, but also is kind of passable. <laughs> Can we make a beautifully designed product out of this to sell 
<laughs> at Cost Plus World Market or whatever. Do you remember when those white women developed a Mahjong game that was like $150 for the tiles? <laughs> oh my God, you have to look it up. The internet lost its fucking mind. Because they're like, we found this like cool game and we decided to make our own version of it and it's like $150 for the fucking tiles and I'm like this shit used to be made out of bones like are you kidding me <laughs> like mahjong tiles used to be made out of fucking chicken bones and fucking whatever you could carve into and they maybe cost $5 for a sack of tiles <laughs> and you're out here trying to market mahjong it is the funniest thing I've ever seen you have to look it up it is hilarious. And it's like when people went, oh God, remember when that um that company was like, we're gonna make a bodega on the go. And it was basically like old cigarette machines with bodega shit in there. And people are like, Are you fucking kidding me? It was like <laughs> these two white guys who were like, We're gonna like we like a bodega, but we wanna like make it upscale. And I'm like, that is you are literally missing the entire point of a bodega. Like if you if you go into a bodega and you're not risking getting Legionnaires disease from a leaky <laughs> AC unit right over the doorway, you're not in a bodega. You're just in a store. <laughs> like, if you don't see a feral cat sitting on top of a bunch of fucking noodle cups, being like, "Thank you," you know, what the hell are you doing? Honestly, listen, you've sparked this idea because again, entrepreneurial spirit. Yep. I was like, let me do this. Let me go down to H Mart this afternoon. Buy up a bunch of fucking those like <laughs> kitchen apply like all of those like plastic buckets and fucking like soup bowls and all that stuff and then just resell them Hell for yeah. triple or quadruple the price. Um, put a sign out in front that's in Futura font or something like a some kind of sans serif font and watch the money just roll in. Just retirement roll in. plan. Your retirement plan is going to be selling your culture to white people because they want it. They want to take it. They want to spend all their money on it so they seem cool. I wonder if I can get, like, hipsters to buy those wash buckets. Like, you know, it comes with, like, a scooper, and you just fill a a water. Like, this is how I fucking took showers in the Philippines when I was there. It was basically, like, we fill up this bucket— this giant fucking bucket, and then we take a scooper and we just like scoop water onto ourselves. Guess what? <laughs> you remember that shower scene in the beginning of In Siang when we talked yes. about it? There are genuinely people in Joshua Tree with like wooden bucket hot tubs and like wooden bucket bathtubs. And I'm like, this is some In Siang shit where yeah. like, you're trying to make it fancy to take a shower and with a, and a hole in the ground. Yeah. And instead of the scooper having an unlicensed drawing of the Powerpuff Girls <laughs> or something, this is this beautiful, like, like balsam fur, like, fucking oh, wood scooper. Like, fuck, dude. It is truly the retirement plan for us is, I, I again, lost my mind when I saw someone talking about, like, oil pulling or some shit like that. And I'm like, Black people have been putting Vaseline on their fucking face for centuries. Like, what are you talking about, white lady? They're like, we invented this new skincare routine. And I'm like, you literally didn't. I did not leave the house in the winter 
between the years of 1982 and 1987 without someone grabbing me. Like, I couldn't even run out. I couldn't run away from them fast enough. Grabbing me by the fucking arm, already had the fucking Vaseline in their hand, and just smacking me in the face with it and just, like, smoothing it all over. Like, you're ready to go? And I'm like, ready to go where? Ready to go fucking (laughs) street fight? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) Like, you didn't invent oil pulling. Well, and like, that's the thing too, is that uh, there are many times where I'm like, you know, on Instagram and I'm like, okay, what kind of like weird home remedies that our mothers Mm -hmm. had are now cool and is, are now like on, you know, the strategist or whatever. I'm like, uh, in my house, it was, my mom just used witch hazel. That was like her face stuff was witch hazel. And then we used Vicks vapor rub for everything. Absolutely. That was like the first stop. If those two things combined didn't cure what was ailing you, <laughs> then you just might die. Because you're yeah. also not going to the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was not an option in my house when you were sick. It's like, well, how sick are you? Yeah. Like, oh, your stomach hurts? Mm, I don't know. Maybe rub some, some Vicks on your chest and your back, and that'll somehow open up your lungs and cure your stomach. Like, nobody knew what they were doing, but also... These are old remedies. It's like yeah. that that joke in um, my big fat Greek wedding when her father put Windex on everything. <laughs> yes, I was just about to mention that. <laughs> but imagine like Gwyneth Paltrow, you, like coming up with an her own Windex in a, in yes. a very beautiful decorative bottle and selling it as like a new remedy. <laughs> Absolutely, and I guarantee that has happened. I I pay so little attention to Goop because I just cannot. I can't pay attention to it. It makes me too angry um, to pay attention to. But I guarantee she has already done that. Like, I have um, this woman who works for me, who, like, cleans my house. And, you know, um, she made this tea one day that I was like, this is delicious. And she said it was just, like, Twining's rose tea. (laughs) But I decided to elevate it by going out to my garden and cutting a couple of rose bushes and steeping the leaves and like really giving you that, like I guarantee that shit's already happened where she's like, oh, you have like just a bag of fucking PG tips. Well, I'm going to elevate that shit and make it organic. Yeah. Like how much more organic can you get than fucking tea leaves? Right. And And this is, I think, the problem. This is why we're not millionaires is because we need to be in her position. We need to be like, Listen, we're the curators of all this shit. Like, you don't mm-hmm. need that lady to tell you to use Vicks Vapor Rub on literally every part of your body. Your like, feet. listen, listen to us. We'll market it for you. If you want to overpay for it, that's totally fine. But let us tell you instead of her. But pay us to tell pay you that, us. This, that if you put Vicks on your feet, which, again, still, 40 years later, do not know the purpose of that. But if you put it on the soles of your feet, somehow you'll wake up and feel better for whatever cold was about to bust open in your body. Yes, exactly. Absolutely unreal. I just, I cannot wait for the moment when I see white people out in these streets, like, brushing their teeth with that stick from Africa. Wait, Like, you know that? (laughs) There's, like, some tree in Africa where it has, like, really soft... Like soft um, meat in it in the middle. Like the wood isn't hard. And so they like brush their teeth with it. I cannot fucking wait to see that shit marketed at Whole Foods. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're already using charcoal. So, yeah. Just a step, step down, a step over. If you just take a step back and look at the macro of what's happening in our world right now, this shit is wild. 
Yeah. Like, all these home remedies and formerly low-class things are now being packaged and resold in a way that I have, I never could have guessed. Never yeah. could. I saw some some company that makes um, period products, and they're like, um, like, this is for cramps, and this is for this, and this is for that. And it's just all eucalyptus. Like, that's all. It's like eucalyptus and peppermint. And I'm like, you know you can just go get those things. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm telling you, let's get on the ground floor. Let's do an elevated cinnamon broom. There we go. Get these people in L.A. to, you know, get some, like, you know, some, what do you call them, some venture capitalists to come in on this project with us. Get Elizabeth Holmes. We get some Elizabeth Holmes money and fucking make, like, a very elevated, very chic cinnamon broom. Oh, and I would charge, like, $200 for it. I would love to Elizabeth Holmes the shit out of it in terms of we make one prototype that barely smells like cinnamon and we get a million and a half dollars. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know why. We we know we told you we could get the cinnamon smell year round out of one broom. I don't know why it doesn't work, but thanks for the money. Goodbye. <laughs> Maybe sprinkle some fucking cinnamon on it. <laughs> and that's how you reactivate it. Or put it, fucking put your hair dryer on it and reactivate that cinnamon. Yeah. Oh, Once yeah. Once a month. You do the work. You do it. We'll take the I money. Can't. Goodbye. <laughs> Good fucking bye. I would genuinely sit in a room. I would take right now $5 million to just sit in a room with a venture capitalist and be like, here's all the crazy shit my grandma did to try to prevent taking me to the doctor. You could sell any one of these things any way you want. Here's a <laughs> list. Just to give them the list. <laughs> Like, just give me the money. Just, you're, this is what's coming. You just give me the money because you're going to find a way to market this shit anyway. So just yeah. let me tell you what's coming next. Yeah. Pay me. Listen, speaking of country. I've had a lot of coffee today and I'm chugging a Diet Coke and that's as country as you can get right now for me. I'm out <laughs> here in these streets just chugging caffeine all day. And we got a theme that's going to work for it. Oh, my God. Listen, I this has been, I I have been waiting to do this theme for so long. Uh, it makes me laugh, and I love the reference point for it. Why don't you tell the folks what our theme is for the week? Our theme this week is City Sadie, Country Sadie. And if you get that reference, good for you. You're one of us. One of us. It essentially is, we're doing a theme about <laughs> uh, people from the country and people from the city and how they swap places sometimes and the hijinks that ensue, right? And if you, if you don't get the reference, it's from a lovely 80s film that was highly on rotation in my uh, video store rentals called Big Business, starring Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. Yes, Separated twins. Two, one set is sent to the city, one set is sent to the country. That's right. That is the basis for the theme. And I don't know if you've heard this term before, because what I think is interesting about our movies is that they're the opposite, right? Yes. So yours is a, is a... I don't Have you heard this term? Is this just a Southern thing? It's called country come to town? Oh, that is 100% a Southern thing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go like, on. <laughs> Like, it was kind of this, like, pejorative term for, like, when 
some redneck from the from the you know country would come into the city and it, it kind of is like a way to describe like a person who comes into the city and starts acting like a fucking fool you know what i mean like they're <laughs> they're like oh my god look at all these big buildings i can't believe it like and they're wearing their like bad jeans i don't know like it's just this like pejorative term for that kind of thing where you're like uh, you're country come to town like look at country come to town walking through here like it was just like a way to say that incredible um, which i don't think <laughs> we're not using that term in this in this way i think this week but that's what your movie is it's a country totally. come to town story right absolutely and i love putting i love that saying because it's it's so southern not just in the words it's using but it's so southern in that way of we're going to insult you to your face and make it sound like something sweet. <laughs> like, oh, country came to town. Meanwhile, we're saying, like, you are a fucking yokel. Yeah. And we it can would... tell from your shoes. <laughs> yeah, it would be... Uh, this was something that, like, I, I would hear when I was... During my DJ days, and I was, like, working a lot in, like, clubs and bars and stuff. And, like, you would always have somebody come in on the weekend from, like... Macon or Augusta or something like that. And they'd be like, you know, just they just looked a lot different than everybody. Like everybody at the bar would be like dressed like fucking, I don't know, like Interpol or something. And then they would come in and it would be like their Clay Aiken or something like that. Like you're like. <laughs> Interpol and Clay Aiken and walk into a bar. <laughs> Sorry. I, that's the best. I have not thought about Clay Aiken in a million years. <laughs> it is the fucking perfect reference I have not thought about. What is Clay Aiken up to? Is he hanging out with Costas Mandalore? <laughs> Are they cutting an album? Oh my god. Du <laughs> Christmas duets. Oh lord. I am crying, officially crying on this episode. Oh, um lord. but you know what I mean? It's that thing where you, and then you would see that Clay Aiken person come in and be like, "Ooh, girl, country came to town." Or country come to town, <laughs> like something like that. You're just like, "Wow, like that is a that is that is a look. That is my movie to a fucking T." Yeah. I cannot even stand it. Yeah. And then but, the flip side of your movie is that it is the exact opposite, where it's like, yep. here's a quaint... It's what's happening now in most small towns, which is like, oh, fuck, we've been infiltrated. And I'm an yep. infiltrator. Even though I grew up here, I'm still an infiltrator because I came back with my, like, big city fucking ideas. Yes. But it's when, like, <laughs> the person who has lived in a major city for 20 years decides... I'm going to come to this town, and instead of assimilating to what this town is, I'm going to make it cool, and I'm going to make it mine. <laughs> yes. I'm going to put my, like, weird goth shit all over this <laughs> fucking <laughs> Duluth Trading Company ass <laughs> town. <laughs> I'm going to put one of, my, one of my sculptures in front of this Bass Pro Shop, <laughs> and it's just spikes. It's just a sculpture of spikes. Be like, you guys get it? Y'all get it? Level up. Level up on this spike sculpture. 
I I have to say I'm like I, I love this concept. It really is funny and interesting, and I feel like our movies like. My movie is definitely, like, y'all have probably seen it, like, 25, 30 times. Like, totally. I, and I, I even, like, hesitate to even really go into a plot about it when, I, when it's my turn. But, like, your movie, I, I haven't seen it in a couple years. And, you know, I think it's it's such a great film. I feel like it is, it's really textured. And I was, like, on this whole thing where I was, like, on the internet reading articles like Mark Harris. I don't know. We've talked mm-hmm. about him before. He wrote The Five Came Back and the Mike Nichols. The Mike Nichols book, yeah. Yeah. He has this great essay on the Criterion Channel website about it. Like, And I was just reading all of these like kind of critical, you know, interpretations of it. And it was like, wow, what a cool movie to like just have people write about and you're going to talk about it. I'm I'm so excited. Well, yeah, let's dig into it because my movie is first this week and it was released in 1969, uh, directed by John Schlesinger. The screenplay is by Waldo Salt, but it's based on the novel by James Leo Hurley. And my movie is Midnight Cowboy. In New York, no rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. Women like me, goddammit. The only one thing I've ever been good for is loving. Come on, country. Come through, country. Come through. This movie, I think I picked, because there are a lot of city, Sadie, country, Sadie movies to choose from if you really look at some themes. And a lot of them are like cartoon and kids movies for some reason. Like, yeah. you could have picked Five Will Goes West. <laughs> You could have. Like, you could have picked Ratatouille. (laughs) Like, for some reason, we're trying to indoctrinate kids about the dangers of moving to the city through cartoon characters who are, like, going through so much major shit when they decide to try one. But... (laughs) Okay, I need Casey to isolate Danielle just saying, you could have picked Five Goes West. (laughs) And we just gonna have to insert that into, like, random episodes. Sometimes. Like, why'd you pick this movie? You could have picked Bible Goes West. <laughs> <laughs> I have not thought about that movie in 25, 30 years. Oh, God. <laughs> Look, Bible Goes West and Clay Aiken on tour 2023. <laughs> Let's <fucking> the, go. <laughs> it's called The Weirdest Tour You've Ever Seen. <laughs> Casas Mandalore will be introducing both acts. <laughs> And then we will have we will have two people show up and we'll make three dollars. Yeah. It will cost us more to license the film. <laughs> oh shit. Oh shit. But there are a lot. There are a lot of city to country, country to city movies. But the reason that I love this one, and this is the first one that came to mind, is there's such a strong there's such a strong vein throughout this film of just how out of place our main character, Joe Buck, is because of his country roots. And there's also, there's something to be said for the fact that what most people know about this film is that it got an X rating when it first came out, and it's about sex and homosexuality. But what I really tapped into this time when watching it is there's also this major theme of loneliness. So you're watching someone who does that country to city move and they don't adjust. Like that is kind of unheard of. There are a lot of things in this movie that were really firsts for the big screen, but that's a major one of them where I think um, there's an article that 
I read on Vanity Fair. And again, there's so much about this movie out there to read. Yeah. Um, I highly recommend digging into it. But I read this article on Vanity Fair by Glenn Frankel, who actually wrote a book about this movie. His book is called Midnight Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. Um, so he kind of thinks about and talks about these themes in the book, but there's it, it, there's so many points in this film where you're like, why is this character doing this? And it always comes back to the fact that it's because he's lonely. He's lonely and out of place. And I just, I love that, even though I've seen it quite a few times, like I can pick up on something new that really hits home for me in, in yeah. this viewing. Yeah. But yeah, so this is a film that, again, like its reputation kind of precedes it. The cast is great. You've got Dustin Hoffman playing Ratso Rizzo, one of the main characters. John Voight plays Joe Buck, the main character. Um, Brenda Vaccaro, Barnard Hughes, Sylvia Miles, like all these, like Ruth White, like all these kind of great actors that are in this film. But it's really about Ratso and Joe, essentially. And my one-sentence synopsis is... A Texas dishwasher tries his luck and moves to New York City to ply his wares and use the one skill he knows he has in his back pocket to become a hustler. Yep, that is what it's about. (laughs) And what I love about this movie is that it is 100% Like, he's like, this is going to work. Like, there's never a doubt in his fucking mind because he's so cute and so, like, he's the number one lover man in Texas. And so he thinks it'll be easy not just to be a hustler in New York City, but his primary goal is to be a kept man. He's like, I'm going to find a rich woman and she is going to love me so much that she will just pay for my lavish existence. Yeah, I was going to say, is there anything more ambitious than thinking you're the best in bed. Like, you're like, oh, I, I'm the best in bed, and I can make money off of it. Like, you just have to be so confident in order to so, even think that. <laughs> so confident, because let me tell you, dicks are everywhere. <laughs> everywhere, especially in New York City. You can make sex whatever you want, if all you need is the apparatus, so to, like, just to be crude for a moment, like, <laughs> I don't know how good you think you are at sex to think you could literally tantalize people with it in a new yeah. city. Be like, I just got here, but I'm awesome at sex. Why don't you buy me an apartment? Like, that is just a level of bravado that I have never considered. Yeah. I mean, that his country Sadie is really coming out in that moment because he's basically just like, oh, this is all going to work out. Like, I'm a stud and I'm just going to be able to live off rich women forever and I'm going to be very successful at it and it's going to happen immediately. Like, I'm not going to have to struggle. <laughs> and I have a completely unique vibe. I'm a country guy. <laughs> you know, <like>. <laughs> <laughs> the day I arrive, and I'm like, look, you could you could arrive in New York. Like John Voight's character, Joe Buck, could have arrived in New York with his dick genuinely hanging out of his pants, <laughs> and it still would not have been enticing to anyone. Yeah, like at all. Yeah, but you see his kind of country Sadie vibe from the minute the movie starts. And the other thing that is really I think kind of associated with this film is the soundtrack because you've got this Harry Nilsson track, you know, everybody's talking, playing throughout. And it's kind of like the soundtrack of his country existence. Everybody's talking at me. 
words are saying Only the echoes of my mind And Joe Buck basically takes a little little radio, a little handheld trans- transistor radio. He takes his brand new cowhide suitcase, a brand new pair of boots, a brand new hat, and sets out on the bus. And he sits on a bus and he sits down next to a man who's eating tobacco like a sandwich. So <laughs> you're basically like, yeah, in this environment, I can see how you're a little bit more like high class or more desirable mm-hmm. to certain people. But it's really, it's an interesting film for so many reasons. And one thing I want to definitely dig into is that this movie was nominated for seven Academy Awards and it won three. It won Best Picture, uh, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. And because it won so many awards, they went back to the ratings board and they're like, so you still want this rated X? And there's this whole complicated history about why it was rated X. And, you know, it's a lot of like fear of homosexuality and fear of sexuality in general. And just, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking the like they brought in like psychologists and shit. And they're like, the public isn't ready for this. Um, But then after it won a shitload of awards, people looked at it and they're like, actually, rated R is fine. It's not that bad. Yeah. Not as bad as we thought. Yeah, I mean, like, at the time, I mean, you obviously have the end of the production code in Hollywood, which, I mean, honestly, like, maybe five years before, maybe even less, you could have, this would have been un-fucking-heard of. Like, you couldn't have made this movie at all in Hollywood uh, with major studio backing, let alone have it nominated and win an Oscar, right? So that's how quickly things were changing like in terms of just like what was appropriate for film and you know nudity mm-hmm. and content and that kind of stuff but it's weird because this movie is one of those movies that really did like change the thing it changed yeah. like you know what uh, the idea of like what an x-rated movie is versus an r-rated movie and it's always going to be historical for that which i think is really interesting absolutely i i completely agree and i think it's also interesting that waldo salt who wrote the screenplay was a blacklisted writer. Yep. And he wrote under pseudonyms and he wrote for like TV shows in the UK and like he he was not able to make his living as a Hollywood screenwriter during you know the time that these codes were enforced. So he had he was one of the the writers who were who was affected and to come out of that experience and write something like this is really a triumph and a, and a, a weird triumph, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. a a nod to the fact that he he was trying to change or at least engage with the definition of what art is or could be by looking at how strict the codes were versus, you know, what could come out of a story that does feature sex and bodies and homosexuality and nudity and all kinds of things. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting, too. Yeah. Um, so essentially, you have this man who is honestly kind of not smart, like he's kind of brazenly dumb like he he relies on his looks in a way that he's not interested in engaging with the real world in a real yeah. way like there's something very boyish and simple about Joe Buck yeah um and the way he kind of like looks at himself in the mirror and like turns around and shoots you know finger guns at himself and like <laughs> he's just very boyish but as the movie goes on and you're looking more at his flashbacks because the movie's told in a pretty interesting way you realize that he's almost been groomed by his grandmother to be this kind of guy and to live this kind of life. And they don't go into it too much. Like they leave 
a very nebulous kind of pocket for you to you know discover on your own but there are scenes of him like in bed with his grandmother and her partner and you're like is this cute or is this weird is this sexual is it not sexual um you know scenes of him washing her hair at a salon and her telling him that he's you know basically hot (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's really complicated so the more you get into it the more that for me anyway i see joe buck kind of trying to deny all of these horrible things that have happened to him yeah. in order to be this person who lives a more simple life who can just get by. So I think like the I kind of in this viewing kind of question more why he didn't have more in-depth aspirations and I think that that's what I kind of discovered is that he he can't because in order to do that he has to engage with parts of his life that he actively were traumatic, were deeply yeah. traumatic. Um, there, so yeah, the, I paid attention a lot to that too this time I watched it because I mean, I, I will say that, you know, this movie is visually at times of the era of the late mm-hmm. 60s. So it, there's moments, it's very psychedelic and it's doing a lot of like, you know, audiovisual tricks. And there's this, these flashback sequences that are kind of like popping up at certain times in the movie that are suggesting that, you know, young Joe Buck had a lot of trauma, possibly sexual trauma, possibly, you know, like he had that situation with the ex-girlfriend that they keep Mm -hmm. flashing back to where there was sort of like a gang, a gang situation, right? Yeah. And about how maybe his girlfriend was institutionalized because of it and everything. And it's like, so there's very like, really, like, kind of horrific flashback moments. And it's just happening randomly in the movie when he's doing things in real time. And so you're, like, kind of questioning, like, well, then is this his response to all that? Is that he's just, like, closed off from any kind of, like, real emotion, real processing? He's just like, I'm just going to be like the, you know, fun guy in the coat in the hat and I'm not gonna you know really think about it I'm just gonna keep going and that's why I think when he meets Ratso like he Mm -hmm. has to he discovers maybe that he does have emotional like he does have an emotional register in some way like right and that is what I think is part so fascinating about the film ultimately is because of that but yeah you're right I mean he's very like Shut it. He shut it down at a certain point. Completely. And you're like, wow. You know? Completely. And then you see what his, what his, his life prior to this, like, traumatic sexual event um, where, you know, spoiler alert, um, he is raped. I mean, the insinuation is that he's raped by all these guys who are kind of jealous of him or who just didn't like him or were jealous of him and his girlfriend. And they both get raped. And, um, you know, he flashes back to moments of it like again in five four years prior they would there would never have been a scene of him naked and bent over a car and someone spreading his legs open like right the insinuation of that alone is what helped get this an x rating yeah but he so he engages with life in a way that's very happy-go-lucky and when he meets ratso he meets him at a point of extreme vulnerability as well so he's yeah. arrived in the city and the women are not fucking having it like his first <laughs> hustle goes so wrong she basically hustles him 
where she's like, I need cab money. Like, she's so offended at the thought that, like, he was a sex worker that she's like, not only am I not paying you, but you're going to give me cab money because I have a date. Yeah. And he, it just goes so wrong. So by the time he goes to this bar and meets Ratso, who is just the sweatiest motherfucker in this city. Um, he, like, Dustin Hoffman in this film is doing the most body horror work I've seen from him. I mean, I, I'm obviously no spoilers, but by the f- end of the film, you're like, how can one character look this gross? Like you're just, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it rivals ah! the fly in a weird way. <laughs> like, yo, this, it is bad. <laughs> it rivals the fly. Oh shit! <laughs> like maybe that's a maybe that's a double feature for you guys is like watching characters deteriorate and watch this movie in the fly. And, the theme is we're falling apart. Yeah, <laughs> for various reasons. Yes, we're falling apart. But he is so outwardly gross and struggling, and. Joe just kind of tells him his whole plan. And Ratso's like, oh, um, I can help you with that. I know this guy named O'Daniel, and he'll set you up in business. And, like, what you need is a manager. And he gets hustled by Ratso, too. Like, he's just getting hustled by everyone. And he meets this O'Daniel guy, and he ends up being, like, this wild priest um, who's basically, like, you know— He's like this evangelical priest who's trying to, like, talk him out of the lifestyle. And this is where Joe Buck's flashbacks, you know, to this terrible night before he left home come back into play. But yeah, like, he's, like, Ratso hustles him out of 10 bucks or 20 bucks for a finder's fee. And this woman's hustled him out of 20 bucks. And he's just, like, losing all of his money. So when he gets back to his hotel room, they're like, um, you can't pay us, so you can't stay here or get any of your shit until you pay. So all he has is his radio, and he's just walking around the streets in New York dressed like a cowboy, like a total cowboy. Mm-hmm. And he's just so lonely. Like, it, I don't think, I think that in that Vanity Fair article I read by Glenn Frankel, he also talked about how this was the first time that New York City was kind of shown in this way, like this very mm-hmm. solemn, dirty, lonely place to be. Yeah. And so we're kind of seeing the seedy underbelly of New York for the first time, um, which comes to fruition when Joe's like, well, I know what I got to do. Um, I got to go to Times Square and I got to start tricking because that's yeah. what Times Square was back then. So he does. He goes and meets Bob Balaban, a young <laughs> Bob Balaban. <laughs> Always forget In that a, that's him. Right? In a wild scene where... You know, again, he gets hustled where he's, you know, agrees to go to this movie theater. And we've talked about this, like, especially in in Basket Case, where Times Square used to be this kind of den of iniquity for places for things like this. So he would, you know, he went to this movie theater and Bob Balaban gives him oral sex. And then he's like, I actually don't have any money. So Joe is struggling. Like, he is struggling to not just function in a day-to-day experience, but he's struggling with the concept of who he is the more this movie goes on. Like, in the country version of Joe Buck, he was king of his fucking domain until that one event happened. That really, I think, forced him out of that setting. Like, he needed to get out of there. Um, But in the city, he is not only a nobody, but he doesn't have the skills or the wherewithal to survive even a day in that city. 
Um, so it's very, very interesting. Yeah, there's that scene. This, I mean, not gonna lie, this movie is a stone cold bummer all throughout. Yeah. It really Fuck is bleak. Yeah. Um, I mean, kind of in this like, I, it is so bleak that there is like a, it has like a vibe. Right. And I uh, sometimes you're in the mood for that vibe. Sometimes like I want to watch a bleak as fuck movie right now. This'll do it for you if you're ever in that mode. But there's this scene in particular that really bums me the fuck out yeah. where he's walking down, I guess, 42nd Street or wherever he is, in his like cowboy getup, and he looks around and there's like a million guys on the street that look just like him. Like, they're like, exactly. oh, here's this guy in a cowboy hat. This guy's got a fringe jacket. This guy. So it's just that realization that it's like, oh, here I thought I was this, like, special thing. Country come to town. Turns out every hustler on 42nd Street looks exactly like me. Completely a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, it is so... And there's the recognition on his face of, oh, this is why women have been treating me like shit all day. Because they knew who I was before I even knew who I yeah. was. <laughs> they could see me coming a mile away. And I didn't know that that's what was happening in this city. Yeah, it is a bleak, bleak moment. Yeah. And God, there's another scene that bums me out so much too. Like he he eventually reconnects with Ratso, And he's like, yo, fuck you. You took 10 bucks or like 20 bucks from me. And Ratso's like, look. I've got a lot of opinions. I've got an awful lifestyle. All I want to do is go to Florida for some sunshine and coconuts. That is my plan. In the meantime, I'm living in a squat. You can come chill with me. And I will take on... And Joe's like, all right, but you got to take on the job of being my actual manager like you said you would be and help me kind of kickstart my sex work career. Yeah. And so there's this really... It's the only scene in the film, and it's not even fun. It's just got a little more levity than the rest of the film, where he's like stealing clothes and like getting Joe kind of cleaned up and like breaking into the shoe shine boxes and shit. And he's getting Joe kind of cleaned up. And then he steals, Ratso steals the address from an escort service and like kind of sets Joe up in this hospital or this, excuse me, this hotel where a lot of rich women hire sex workers. And of course the plan backfires because again, Joe has no idea what he's doing. So he's instantly thrown out for solicitation. Yeah. <laughs> but you get to see a little bit of Ratso's dream in that moment where he's kind of watching Joe go off into what he thinks is their future. And there's this really like psychedelic scene kind of far out where he's envisioning himself in Florida being like, the man of man about town and he's you know still sweating up a storm but he's got you know he's got everyone wrapped around his finger essentially and yeah. so his dreams are constantly crashing down too and you you're watching these two characters these two people trying to hold on to each other for like for like a like a life support and neither one of them is equipped to help themselves or the other person so it's like and again, I know you haven't seen Titanic, but it's like Rose and Jack on that fucking door at the end. It's like, if you yeah. get on, I'm going to sink. And if I get off, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, yeah. this is a constant seesaw that you're watching with these characters between, like, can we actually help each other? I don't know, but we're all we've got. Yeah. And Ratso's got the street smarts. Like, he's born and raised in New York, and he kind of has the street smarts, but he doesn't have the, the temperament or the personality to make his dreams come true in New York. Um, yeah. People outwardly hate him and he's kind of vile and like he's just 
reviled. Like, he's a definitely a reviled character. So he's like, all right, well, if I'm going to make it and use my knowledge in a way that makes my life better, I got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And Joe's like, but wait, I just got here. Give me some of that knowledge before you go. Yeah. Um, I Okay, I'm going to say this right now, and I hope I'm not offending entire segments of our listenership. And I, and I don't know if this is because I've spent extensive amounts of time in the state of Florida. Is there anything sadder than someone who believes that all their dreams will come true in Florida? <laughs> Present day, no. There's nothing sadder. <laughs> like, I... It, this is something actually that I have to give myself a programming challenge because I can think of like two, at least two movies where Ooh. the characters are so desperate to go to Florida because they think that they're going to reinvent themselves and, uh, you know, make a good life for themselves. And mm -hmm. this is like part of what I think is so, this is why this movie is so interesting and why I love reading about it and love talking about it is because, yeah, you're exactly right. There's like two dreams going on right now, which is that, the country comes to town, and then the town wants to go to Florida, <laughs> you know? And it's just this kind of, like, naive, this, like, naive thinking of, like, I mean, Ratso is living in a squat. Okay, also, I have to ask you, does it ever, did it ever get revealed, like, what Ratso is sick with? Like, does he have septic no. shock? Like, I'm like, what is this illness? He is sick throughout, and he he's getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and it's not revealed in the film at all. Yeah. And he, of course, can't go to a doctor. And right. so we never find out in the film what it is. But it's an illness that's progressing to the point where he loses the use of his legs. Yeah. So it could be like MS, or it could be something. But it seems like it's also something to do with his lungs and, like, his whole vascular system. Like, he is just struggling to function. And I think that the... What I, t what I keep taking away from this, this film when I watch it is that I believe they're trying to convey this notion that the way he lives is killing him. Yeah. So the fact that he's poor, the fact that he can't get by, the fact that he already has a disability, um, like he kind of walks with a limp. And so they're trying to convey this underlying notion that like his lifestyle is killing him because he can't get proper care and if he could get care for one of his ailments he might actually thrive but yeah. because he can't get help for any of them they just get progressively worse and worse and worse yeah i couldn't figure out if this was something like a chronic condition or if this was like uh, some acute thing where you know he maybe he like cut himself in a rusty can and was just right. like you know sweating out basically because i was like this it's fascinating because that's part of, like, his character uh, progression is obviously he gets sicker and sicker, looks grosser and grosser, and, uh, you know, and he can't take care of himself. And, like, even the interesting part is that there's a moment where Joe actually, like, gets a little bit of money, goes to the store and buys him medicine, and he's just like, okay, cool. Like, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, he's not, like, almost kind of like, well, I deal with this all the time and none of that's going to help me type of thing. And I'm like... Well, what is yeah. it? You know, I don't know what it is it, you know, or like what what he's suffering from. It's very interesting. But I like that they leave it nebulous because you get you get to kind of wonder like yeah. what is 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 this a resistance in this character that he refuses to help himself? Even though yeah. he looks so industrious and he's always trying to make a buck, he's not actually trying to help himself ever. So yeah. it seems like a really cool 
shade of this character to kind of question like, well, what is his illness and why isn't he getting help for it? And is he so, is he lying to himself the same way that Joe is lying to himself about his abilities and, you know, his his ability to kind of make money and thrive and do what he actually wants to do in New York while ignoring his major trauma and ignoring his major illness in order yeah. to try to get by. Like, he's just living day to day the same way that Joe is. And that came through to me loud and clear as well this time. But like, these are just people living day to day, hour to hour sometimes. That there's that whole scene where they go to like the, you know, fake Andy Warhol party or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're about to walk up the stairs to go into the loft or whatever. And Ratso like basically can't even walk up the stairs. He's so winded. And then, yeah. You know, Joe basically is like, all right, let's get your look together. I mean, goddamn, this movie is bleak. This is another fucking bummer part. But it's like, he's like, oh, I gotta like, you know, let's comb your hair. Let's get do something with your hair. And it's just like... That ain't gonna do it. Man, like he, like they just kind of try to slit. His hair is like, you know, a rat's nest. I mean, he's sweating, constantly sweating. And he's just like, they're trying to like comb it and make it look good. And I'm like... Yo, I don't even think he can climb up these stairs to make it to the party. Yes. And then he actually, when he leaves the party, he falls down the stairs. And I'm like, yo, this guy is breaking. Like, after he just spent the whole party doing laps and jamming food in his pockets, and the lady's (laughs) like, yo, you don't have to steal the food. It is free. And he's like, great, give me all of it. (laughs) Did you not? This is how I felt. Every time I see that part, I'm like, yes. I am Ratso. Like my hot friend, my hot friend got invited to this cool party, ah, and I'm their, ah. I'm their uggo that's just stealing the salami off of the spread. They're just trying to make me passable enough to be able to go through the door so that they can go in and have a good time. And I'm I mean, gonna sit in the corner with like a Dagwood sandwich that I've compiled out of all the hors d'oeuvres. I'm like housing appetizers. Like get all those meats. You go have fun. <laughs> I'm just going to be eating the salami. <laughs> Ooh, they got pineapple. I'm cool. <laughs> pineapple and toothpicks. I'll be over here. <laughs> oh, shit. And it does, and it gets bleaker, and I don't want to ruin the ending, but no. I will say there is an attempt at an escape from New York that just lands them both in more of the worst luck that you can ever imagine. And so this is a very, it's a different kind of of city, city, country, city entry because there's not a lot of hope. It's very, very bleak. It's kind of like Fat City where you're just watching people. Yeah. <laughs> like we talked about that movie, Fat City. <laughs> and you're watching people like, why doesn't he just get a job as a dishwasher? He used to be a dishwasher in fucking Texas. And he's like got such a grandiose idea that he can't let go of. And it's this idea of who he thinks he is and who he wants to be that ends up being his downfall. And I just, I love a movie that shows you that kind of grittier side of city life because it's not all fucking Gossip Girl and, you know, fucking tea at the Ritz and the fucking big piano from the, the big toy piano from big like right cities are rough in new york city especially when you dig into the the underbelly there's a lot of rough shit going on yeah in most people's lives so. damn dude i i gotta say i mean i am a fan of this movie i'm a fan of of movies like this obviously i presented fat city listen do it do a double feature called stone cold bummers 
<laughs> and then just sit in a bath all night wondering about your life. Yeah. <laughs> just sit in a bath in a dark room, dark bathroom, turn the lights out, get in the tub, and just wonder what the fuck your life is all about. I I I love it. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna lie. I I fucking love shit like this. Like the bleaker the better. Um especially Me when it comes too. to like New York, the old New York. I mean, we've talked about it. It's so I love seeing old 42nd Street, all that mm. stuff. But this is a, it's such a perfect movie for the theme. I mean, you can't get a more country Sadie than Joe Buck. And he really, I mean, his, the way his like spirit gets diminished scene by scene is so fucking real and so bleak. And it's masterful. Yeah, it's really masterful. And I feel like, you know, it is one of those, if you haven't seen Midnight Cowboy, I mean, I hesitate saying this because it, it just seems like this is the thing that film people say all the time. It is it is a must-watch for me. Like, just yes. to get the references, to watch, you know, like, the one of the best movies of the late 60s. And just... Also, I gotta say, I'm gonna ask, your, ask you this question. I love... Okay, I love John Voight as a mm-hmm. young as a young actor... I know he's something different now. Oh, yeah. And we're going to ignore that part. But <laughs> just that information is out there for you to discover, should you so choose. Yes. Like, th- there's a, a different John Voight that's on our astral plane right now. But the old John Voight, the one that was in Midnight Cowboy and, like, you know, Deliverance and Conrack, is like, I love young John Voight. Okay. I think he's a great actor. There are times in this movie where I'm like, because, you know, the whole movie is about him being a fucking hot stud, right? And I'm like, yeah. there are moments where I'm like, he looks like a hot stud. I can see it. He's very cute. He's very tall. And then there are moments where I'm like, he looks exactly like Angelina Jolie. Okay, let's fucking talk about it. I cannot even tell you, because that's her dad, obviously, if you haven't put that together. Her dad is John Voight. And she has his face. Yep. She stole his fucking face. And I've always thought that. And there are, you know, some photos where they're together and you're like, oh, yeah, like she's definitely his kid. In this movie, there are too many scenes where I'm like, that's Angelina Jolie. Yes. that That's her. Yeah. That is her. Yes. Like it is riveting and jarring to see it at this stage of life when you've watched one of his kids have this kind of career as well. Yeah. But yeah, they have the same face. She has her mom's lips, but she has his face. Yes. The eyes. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I was like, yes, John Voight is very attractive. But wait a minute. Is this Angelina Jolie and Hackers right now? Like, what am I watching? I'm like, that's it. That's her face. That, it is, I could, there are times I cannot. Get over it. I'm of two minds yeah. whenever I see him as a young as a young actor. So, genetics are wild. There wild. are so many scenes that I wrote down in my notes that I'm like, and then Angelina Jolie shows up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they do not have a good relationship. So I apologize, Miss Jolie. Yes. I know you probably don't want us putting your names together, but I can't get over it. Yeah, it's it is so crazy how much they look alike. But um, oh, and there's also. I have to mention if you are, because there's not a lot of music in this in this film, um, but one of the other songs that you hear a lot is the theme from Midnight Cowboy, which is a lot of like, you know, kind of a 
a real cowboyish song. Mm-hmm. Faith No More does an incredible cover of the Midnight Cowboy theme oh on the album Angel Dust. And it's very orchestral. And I've always loved it. And I listened to that song before I ever saw this movie. And I was kind of like, hmm, Midnight Cowboy, what's this about? Why are they doing this kind of orchestral thing? So when I finally saw the movie and put two and two together, I was like, it's beautiful. They turned this very simple song into a very beautiful um, piece. Yeah. Isn't it like John Barry did that soundtrack for the yeah. for those pieces? Yeah. Amazing. Well, got, got to jam that Faith No More version. That's amazing. I didn't realize I mean, they did that. Oh, yeah. go Today, when we finish recording, you're going to look it up, listen to it, and it's <laughs> so wild. that Faith No More of all people. Because this is, I mean, Angel Dust as an album goes pretty hard. Yeah. And so then they kind of drop in this like like lilting, lovely orchestral piece, <laughs> and Mike Patton isn't singing over it or anything. But who would I be if I didn't mention Faith No More? Uh, listen, uh, I expect nothing. Any chance, I guess. Nothing else. Yeah. Um, well, well great... I can't wait to talk about your fucking movie. Uh, lo- a bit of a tone shift. This might be our wildest theme pairing <laughs> in a long time. Yeah, I was trying to think of something that was more jarring than Midnight Cowboy and Beetlejuice, but, you know, I can't really think of anything. (laughs) So, my movie for the theme, City Sadie, Country Sadie, is a movie from 1988. It was written by Michael McDowell, Larry Wilson, and Warren Skarin, directed by Tim Burton, and it's called Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. So, look, I... I'm just going to say it. I, I probably don't even need to give any details about this no. film. Every None. is a beloved classic. Everybody has seen it probably a hundred times. You probably all know who Tim Burton is, the director of this movie. You probably know him a lot more than I do. Let's just say that. But for paperwork purposes, right? So Beetlejuice was Tim Burton's second film after Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which I'm sure everybody has seen a hundred times as well. And, (laughs) listen, I tried to listen to this Canadian Broadcasting Corporation-produced oral history of Beetlejuice, and I couldn't. It's, like, unavailable, for the U. For I thought you meant US. like I couldn't because it's it's too bad. No, no, <laughs> it, 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 it couldn't was, get through it. <laughs> I tried to play it on their website, and they're like, "This is not available in your country." And I was like, "God damn it!" So mm. guess what? You're not. I'll spare you the oral history of Beetlejuice. This I time. cannot believe there's not a U.S. based oral history of Beetlejuice, especially since the Broadway play came out. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, unavailable for us, but um, maybe if we write enough letters to the CBC, they'll they'll release the Beetlejuice oral history version. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh God! But um, there's a lot of great articles. I mean, the Ringer has a great article about the history of Beetlejuice. So just go look all that stuff up. Okay, I mean, this movie it, it is it, it is beloved. It's it's such a classic. I mean. There was an animated series after it was released, mm-hmm. like on, was it like one of the big three channels, right? It was like yeah, ABC it was or Fox or something. Fo- yeah, something like that. I feel like there was a theme park ride or something or like a, a mm-hmm. stage show at 
Six Flags or Disney World or something, I'm I'm sure somebody will tell me. <laughs> I'm sure somebody in the comments of our Instagram will tell me exactly what all that stuff is. We already have four emails. Yes, yes. And, you know, so there's this, like, a... There's this ubiquitous quality to Beetlejuice for sure. But you forget, and that's if you're old enough to have forgotten, right, that when Beetlejuice was released, a lot of film critics thought it was pretty stupid, Mm -hmm. right? And I think famously, one of the only people who actually liked it at the time was Pauline Kael, which, I mean, shocker. She's like, you hate it? I love it. You love it? I fucking hate it. There's my career. We stand an edgelord. A female edgelord. We love her. But in spite of that, I mean, this movie made a shit ton of money. Uh, it had a big afterlife. Get it? Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> with the, the, like, the cartoon and the toys, lots of toys. Halloween costumes, like, I swear to God, like, this Halloween, there was at least, like, four people on my Instagram feed dressed like Beetlejuice. So, yep. it it persists in the culture. And so, I was thinking about this, like, critical opinion of it, you know, and I was like, to be honest with you, like, a lot of, like, what I was reading of it in 88 when it came out was is all the stuff that I like about it, which is that I think it's, like, slapstick and goofy and... I have to say, too, that I think generally when it comes to Tim Burton, right, there's something, like, that I really connect with with, like, the older Tim Burton stuff. Like, Pee-wee's, like, Edward Scissorhands, you know, Beetlejuice. And I think it's just because of the references, right? Because... Absolutely. Tim Burton has, like, a camp quality to him. And... I love how he sort of addresses... There's kind of these, like, topics that are throughout his films. A lot of them deal with, like, old Hollywood, but also, like, the concept of tackiness, right? Yes. And he also, like, to our point, to the theme, he talks a lot about, like, the burbs, right? Mm -hmm. The, The tackiness of the burbs. And I feel like he grew up in Burbank, maybe? Yeah. And so, I don't know. I mean, to me, you know, to all of us, not living in L.A., Burbank is the high, highest of culture, maybe. But I guess in reference to L.A., Burbank is kind of, you know, like a corny burb or something, right? And also, like, very similar. It was, it, was, it was a true suburb in that, like, the houses all look the same and the people all acted the same. And, like, at the time that he grew up there, I imagine it was just compounded by the fact that they were so close to, like, this Hollywood area, yeah. but they weren't accessing that in their day-to-day life at all. Yeah. Yeah, like, like I always think about, like, in Edward Scissorhands, like, the, the colored houses that are all the same and everybody, like, leaves at the same time. I mean, that kind of stuff yep. um, seems very much like a product of where he grew up, right? Um, and this, he has that kind of disjointedness, I think, because of where he grew up and what, you know, his constantly coming back to the themes of the suburbs because I think that it's it's not surprising to me that this movie wasn't critically well received because it suffers from that that thing where people don't know what category to put it in because it's very funny but it's also very scary and it's kind of for kids but it's very much not for kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like there's a lot of like good information out there about like the kind of like the genesis of the idea for this movie and initially it was supposed to be it was supposed to have been like a straight up horror film um and i guess now you would consider it kind of like a horror comedy uh like you know when you think about stuff like 
Evil Dead 2 or, you know, the the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Like, a lot of those, like, right. you know, uh, comedies that are just, like, really over the top. Like, The Burbs. That's, an, uh, that's a mm-hmm. perfect example. But, you know, so there's this whole thing that Tim Burton is, like, working in a lot. So there's, like, the concept of tackiness, the concept of The Burbs. But also, he loves old Hollywood, which is why there are people in the movie like Robert Goulet and Dick Cavett. And there's there's a part of me that thinks that the character of Beetlejuice 2, which, you know, uh, uh, what I've read, like Michael Keaton, who obviously plays Beetlejuice, was very um, involved in the creation of the character and the way, the backstory of the character, the way the character looked. And so there's this, like, quality of the character of Beetlejuice that is very old-timey Hollywood to me, just like a yeah. f- fucking sleazy showman guy or something, and a, which is definitely part of the appeal for me. So I, I'll just give a one-sentence synopsis just because it I'll just do it. I mean, you guys know what this movie is about. So a married couple who are living in rural Connecticut pass away after a car accident. They come back as ghosts and then unsuccessfully try to haunt the people that moved into their old house. Beautiful. That's the concept of, of Beetlejuice. So... I mean, you know the movie. You got the Maitlands, Adam and Barbara, played by Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. And at the very beginning of the movie, they're kind of like maybe what the kids would call like cottagecore. <laughs> is, is that their vibe? Ah! What a sentence. <laughs> what a sentence. They're kind of like what the kids would call cottagecore. I mean, that's the... I mean, it's th- true. Yeah, they, it seems to be, like, a lot of, like... I mean, you know, Gina Davis is wearing these, like, floor-length, like, Laura Ashley-looking dresses, and... Oh, my God. Uh, Adam Adam is wearing, like, you know, checker, like, buffalo plaid stuff with, like, dockers. It's very, like... They're kind of like country. They're just kind of country. And they're very they're very into being country as well. Yeah. Like they love their country house. They love their aesthetic. And Jane, their fucking real estate um agent, is constantly trying to like get them to sell the house and move on and be country somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> but they're like, no, we like it here. They go into town and there's like, you know, the old guy in front of the the barbershop five and dime who carries on a conversation even when nobody's around like he just keeps talking while adam runs into the store which i fucking love yes and they're into it they love this small town life yes yes it's very cozy um you know basically at the beginning of the movie like adam and barbara are like about to take like this two-week staycation essentially where adam's gonna like work on his models and he's gonna listen to harry belafonte and Everything is great. And then they go into town one day and accidentally drive off of a bridge because of a a dog, like a very precocious dog. They swerve to avoid a dog who ends up killing them. Yes. (laughs) And he's like, all I wanted to do was go into town and get some paint for the model I'm building of this entire town. (laughs) That's how much I love this town. I'm building a model of it in my attic. Exactly. And if you need a second movie for your dogs <laughs> who who murder people, double feature, you got Beetlejuice. Um, Animals who kill. <laughs> so basically, everything that happens after they die, right, is essentially this fantasy of what being dead is like, which, according to Tim Burton, means that 
you essentially get ushered into this like entire bureaucracy of like handbooks and caseworkers and like waiting in offices for an eternity and basically being like, okay, like what are the fucking rules here? Like, I don't know. Is anybody <laughs> going to tell me anything? We're just riffing. We have no idea what this is like, right? Like we don't even, we don't even know we're dead at first. We just yes. thought we got home. <laughs> yes. They try to they try to walk out of their damn door and like almost get eaten by a fucking sandworm and I'm like <laughs> So they're not allowed to go outside the house. That's that gets established pretty quickly. But then they're also like, well then wh- what what are we allowed to do? Like we don't see ourselves in mirrors. There are no feet. There's no I mean like it's just very like it gets rolled out to them almost by accident and they just have no idea how to be ghosts, and that part is so funny to me. <laughs> so fucking funny. It's still so funny. Yeah. Part of, part of like that is what makes for me makes the movie like really pleasurable is watching these two dead people like go to this office, which there's like paperwork stacked to the ceiling. I mean, I think everybody loves the waiting room. Of all these other yes. dead people, and they're just sort of like they—they're they, ripping the ticket off like at the deli counter, and they're just like, "Fuck!" <laughs> so good, <laughs> it's so good. And they don't even know—they're like, we don't even know what this waiting room is. They know nothing. They yeah. know nothing. No, no information. And they refuse—they can't read the the handbook. Right? There's this handbook that gets given to every dead person, apparently, called... <laughs> what is it called? The Handbook for the Recently... The Handbook for the Recently Deceased. That's right. And uh, it reads like stereo instructions. That's the running <laughs> joke. Um, but but they, they can't figure out how to live as dead people, right? So while they're all trying to figure this out, the family... There's a family that comes in from New York and they buy the house that they love so much. And it's these people called the Dietzes. The dad is essentially some, like, real estate tycoon who is, like, desperate to relax. Uh, reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of you, actually, Danielle. <laughs> your, like, previous episode where you're like, I'm trying to relax. Get the I'm fuck I'm trying to figure me. this shit out. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to fucking relax. Yeah. And then his new wife, who is this, like, downtown Soho conceptual artist lady, uh, a sculptor, and then his teenage goth daughter. And these people are famously played by Jeffrey Jones, Catherine O'Hara, and Winona Ryder. And if you, for some reason, if you've never seen Beetlejuice, but you have seen Schitt's Creek, just imagine Catherine O'Hara's character in Schitt's Creek being a sculptor. Pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. Absolutely brilliant in this movie. She is incredibly funny. Yes. And, like, part of why I picked this movie for this theme is because these people are the absolute polar opposites of the Maitlands, right? And this is the humor of the film, right? Is that these, like, fucking New York, like, black clothes, like, hip, like, artist types are moving to the country and they are, like what is this bullshit? What are these cinnamon brooms? What are these, like, bird-washing books? Like, get the... let strike! Strike the walls! And let's put some fucking weird art in here. Right? Let's throw some mauve up here on these walls. Yes. And then, like, probably my favorite character in the film is 
Delia Dietz's friend Otho, okay? And he is played by Glenn Shaddix, who is this, was this incredible character actor. Mm-hmm. He was the priest in Heathers. Like, he's been in so many things. He's been in Seinfeld. He was from Alabama. And I, every time I see him in anything, I love it. I think he's he's so funny. He's got a very iconic voice. Um, and I think, look, yes. And look. I think he did a lot of, like, voice acting, too, in his career. Mm-hmm. But here comes Otho with his, like, spray paint can. And he is, like... Another another guy from the city. And, you know, he dabbles in, like, interior decorating and the paranormal. He's just like this, you know, <laughs> fucking jack-of-all-trades guy from New York. And uh, he has this line that really makes me laugh, which is that he pops into one of their rooms and he's like, deliver me from L.L. Bean. Which yeah. <laughs> is like... So, uh, that's them to a T, is that they're looking at this house going, this shit is LLB nightmare, and we're going to change it and make it cool, and we're going to make it look like MoMA, basically. We are Interpol, you are Clique. (laughs) Yes! So, so these, like, city city people are coming to wreck the Maitland's house. And so they're like, we got to get them the fuck out of here. They're trying to haunt people. Again, they don't know how to be ghosts. So they're just basically like, I don't know. We're just throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks. Nothing sticks. So then, <laughs> guess what? Suddenly, this... Ah, uh, is it a demon? Is it a dead guy? His name is Beetlejuice, regardless of, of what he actually is. And he kind of makes himself known to them. Okay? And... I just have to say, for the record, Beetlejuice is one of maybe my favorite fake characters in all of movie history. It definitely is my favorite Michael Keaton role ever. I mean, he is so good in this. It's probably one of my my tops for him as well. It's easily one of my top three of his roles. And... You know, at the time in his career, I mean, I was reading, like, you know, he had all these hits in the early 80s, like Mr. Mom. You know, we talked about Mr. Mom. But then he was kind of in a lull period, I guess, in his career. And so, you know, when he did this movie, like, it it kind of, like, brought him back up to everything, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's that thing where his his whole shtick, he's kind of like this sleazy old showbiz guy meets, like, New York City cab driver. I fucking love it. I think it's so funny. He has, like, really funny lines. And, I mean, this is probably why critics hated it so much, because they're like, God, this guy's so annoying. And I'm like, this guy could come to my house and live with me. I would... He's so fucking funny and hilarious. There... One of my favorite parts of the movie is this fake commercial that, like, comes on the TV. He's basically trying to get Adam and Barbara to, like, you know, invoke him so he can, like... You know, help them get rid of the fucking Dietzes. Right. And this guy is unhinged, by the way. So I'll back up and say this. So the Maitland's caseworker, Juno, who is played by this woman, Sylvia Sidney, she was a 1930s movie star. She was in this movie I love, actually, called Merrily We Go to Hell with Frederick March. And it it was directed by a woman. So in the 30s, there were female directors making movies. And she she's much older, obviously, in this role. She's like smoking long cigarettes, and the smoke's coming out of a slit from her her neck. And 
she's like, do not fuck with this guy. Like, yeah. he's going to try yourself. to make you say his name three times and you got to resist. No, if you want these people out of your house, you got to do it yourself. Right. Because this I guy... I will not give you any pointers beyond that, but do it yourself. <laughs> right. She, she was like, he used to be my assistant. He's totally unhinged. He's He will probably kill everybody. Don't don't hire him. But he's so, depraved. Yes, he's absolutely depraved. And of course, you know, they're desperate, so they invoke him. And then here he comes, like, trying to look up Barbara's skirt. And then the, my favorite part is the fake... There's a fake commercial that comes on where it is like a fake used car lot commercial. And he's dressed like somebody in like a 90s psychobilly band. Like he's dressed like somebody from the Super Suckers or something. It is, it, he's like Joe Buck, but gross. Let's just say that. <laughs> and he has this whole like speech in the commercial. And then he's like, you basically like say it once, say it twice. I'll eat anything you want me to eat. I'll swallow anything you want me to swallow. Come on down and I'll chew on a dog. <laughs> I'll eat anything you want me to eat. I'll swallow anything you want me to swallow. Come on down out. Chew on a dog. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea. It's like, come on down. I'll chew on a dog. Luigi, <laughs> <laughs> you want to know exactly how fucking depraved I am. <laughs> I want to get that those lyrics tattooed on my body. It's so funny. Even all these years later, it makes me laugh so hard. And a big part of that is because Michael Keaton is so good at being so gross in this fucking Yes. This, I mean, honestly, for a movie that was as popular as it was and that's in the cultural consciousness as much as this movie is, it fucking hits. Like, I, it is fucking hilarious. Like, legit hilarious. Completely. Michael Keaton is a fucking genius, like, for this movie. Period. He's got the me. range of, like, I don't even, he's, his range extends from coast to coast. Like, it is unreal. Yes. Yes, I, I, I truly. This is my favorite role he's ever done. <laughs> Fuck your awards. Fuck dope yes. pick. Fuck your comeback. Fuck your bird mans you or bird whatever man. the fuck. Like, this is it for me. And you are I mean, I, honestly, like, I there's so, I could go on. There are so many parts of the movie that are just like I quote all the time, and I mean, you guys know all these, and I don't want to like you know pounded into the ground. But, you know, in terms of the theme, it is perfect for the theme for me because it's the inverse of Midnight Cowboy. You've got, like, city people come to the country, try, at certain at a certain point, the Jeffrey Jones character, who's this real estate tycoon, right, he is, like, envisioning that he's going to buy the entire town. Yes. And turn it into this, like, paranormal, like, you know, he's going to make it into, like, I don't know, Celebration Florida or something, where it's like a planned yeah. town about exorcisms and ghosts and stuff, you know? Like, and then you got poor Lydia, who's just like, I am the only people who can see these ghosts because I wish I was dead. <laughs> yes. And, like, oh, listen, this this was... I mean, I, I don't know if she was in anything before Beetlejuice, technically, but, like... This was when she became America's goth sweetheart. Yep. Like, she, like she did Heather's after this, and like you know, it, it's basically like to me. I feel like the quintessential 
Winona Ryder role. It's what made me fall in love with her. You know, like wearing that fucking giant hat <laughs> in the veil and her hair. And I and I had read something too where basically the producers of the movie or one of the writers of the movie, she was inspired by this this guy going to a cure concert. <laughs> And was like, oh, yeah, this is... She's like, Lydia Deese is just going to be, like, a Cure fan. (laughs) I was like, yeah, nailed it. I absolutely love it. I absolutely love the high drama of Lydia Deese. Truly unparalleled. I know. And, I mean, the only other thing I'll say about this movie, too, is that, you know, Harry Belafonte is on the soundtrack. It is a wonderful addition to the movie. And those songs became popular again. Yeah. When this movie came out. Yeah. I remember that. Like this yep. was like some generationally this was a lot of people's first exposure to Harry Belafonte. Yep. And you know everybody obviously remembers the big scene where they're at the dinner table and then they get the shrimp fingers come out and push them but they're dancing to Harry Belafonte and the funniest part was when I was a kid and I saw that I had no idea that they were being possessed. I thought they were just dancing on their own free will. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, I had no idea. I was like, I didn't get that they were being possessed by people. Like, I I didn't realize that Maitlands were controlling their actions. I just thought, oh, they're just like having dinner and they're weird. And they just got up and started dancing. (laughs) Look, Catholicism, (laughs) the bones run deep. That you can't even conceive of a possession in film <laughs> at a young age. <laughs> I was like, yo, he's turning over that wine bucket and making a bongo drum, I guess. <laughs> That's, this is what adults do at parties. Yeah. <laughs> this is what adults do. Oh, shit. Well... Oh, I I love this entry for the City Sadie, Country Sadie theme because it is so starkly, it's not just starkly about the, the people moving from the city to the country, but it's about the country people being like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't want you here. We know what you'll do to our house and our town. Get the fuck out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it sort of is like a movie about gentrification in a lot of ways. And it's like... I don't know. Like the the Dietzes are making those property values rise in these small towns, and that is a problem that we still face. And you know, I don't know. To me, I I, I it is a deranged pairing with Midnight Cowboy, but somehow we made it work as only we can do. <laughs> Truly, I'm impressed by <laughs> us. I'm enamored. I love this. This was so much fun. Yeah. And we give you, look, we're giving you the levity. We're giving you the bleakness. We're all over the map here with these two, but you can access your emotions through both films in very weird ways. (laughs) And get into that city, city, country, city lifestyle. Absolutely. Well, listen, I I know we got an episode coming out next week. Do you want to tell them what the movies are? Oh, I do. Because in a a twist for us, they're kind of, they're recent-ish. Yes. Films. So your movies for next week are both documentaries. Mm. One is Stories We Tell from 2012. And the other is Mommy, Dead, and Dearest from 2017. 
Oh boy. Oh boy. Try Here to we guess go. that theme. This will be a hard theme to guess, I think. Yeah. Because it's not documentaries. Mm. So it's you not. can't say that. Um, well, listen, if you want to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Please send us uh questions, fuck Mary Kills, whatnot for bonus. Sometimes they get read on the main feed. So do that. And you can send us uh, things to our P.O. box. We love getting handwritten letters. The link is on our social media. It's on our Instagram account under our link tree, uh, where you can find us on all our socials at isawpod um, on Instagram and Twitter. Was that a sentence that makes sense? I don't know. But find <laughs> us on at isawpod on Instagram and Twitter. You can also get the link for our P.O. box on Instagram. Absolutely. Well, listen, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure to do this podcast with you. I laugh so hard with you Ugh. every week, and it is it really just makes my life better. Highlight of my week, always. Thank you so much for doing this. This was a blast. Awesome. All right. See y'all soon. Bye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.